Last week, uh, we got into Micah chapters uh, 3 and 4, and I think we got to the end of chapter 3, and we saw this verse uh, where Micah said, Therefore, because of you, this is 3.12, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now, that doesn't sound like, you know, a startling verse. But leave your finger there. Mark your spot because we're coming back in just a second. Turn over to the left hand side there to page 1242 in your study Bible. This is Jeremiah 26, page 1243. Jeremiah 26. And... uh, Here, uh, Jeremiah is threatened, the kingdom is threatened, and here's what the the officials said to the priests and to the prophets. This is at the bottom of the page. This man should not be sentenced to death, that is Jeremiah. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, look at this, verse 18, this is the top of page 1244, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Thank you, Dan. Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent? So that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them. So here's what's happening is that in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah is prophesying the people are not listening. You notice what they do. They, they say to the people, don't you remember that Micah of Moresheth some years earlier predicted destruction? And we listened. Hezekiah repented and God relented. So that's how we know that Micah was an effective preacher in the sense that he actually led to the repentance of the entire nation. So, as we mentioned earlier, one thing that makes Micah distinctive is that he was actually effective. Now, turn over to 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, this is on page 578. 2 Kings 18. And here we have the reign of Hezekiah. And I want you to notice how effective Micah and his contemporary Isaiah were. When people listen to the Word of God, they take His judgment seriously. They take His warnings seriously. God is gracious and compassionate. He'll relent. He'll do the same thing with you today. You'll listen to His warnings seriously. Take His direction seriously. Repent of your sin. He will relent of His, of his judgments. And ultimately, how that happens is you just trust in Jesus Christ. And all the judgment of God that belongs to you goes on Christ. Just by simply trusting Him and repenting and turning from, from the way in which you were going. But look at Second uh, Kings 18. You'll find verse 13 there at the bottom of the page. This is Second Kings 18:13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is during the time of Micah, okay? attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. We mentioned that, that he's closing in on Jerusalem, capturing all the cities around Jerusalem. So look what Hezekiah did. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish, which is one of the cities he destroyed. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. That's 11 tons of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's a ton of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. So Hezekiah, who started off trying to have an alliance with Egypt to defeat these ransacking Assyrians, now apologizes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I won't uh, ally with Egypt anymore. Here, take all the silver out of God's temple. It doesn't belong to Hezekiah in the first place. It belongs to God. He gave it away. 
So now he's, instead, of, instead of allying with Egypt, now he's trying to buy off Assyria. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold which, with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah is going to try his human methods. And that's, that's the way we all start out. When we know that we're in trouble, we start trying to buy our way out of this thing. Start trying to negotiate, create alliances, bargain with God, bargain with somebody else. All these human mechanisms to deal with our trouble. And look where it gets you. Look at verse 17. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct at the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. And the field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king of the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now. You are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him, even if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we're depending on Jehovah, if we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. This guy is really perverted. Really perverted. Claiming to have a word from God. To invade God's people. So, as all of Hezekiah's machinations got him nowhere. When you give the devil an inch, he will take a mile. And after he takes a mile, he'll rub your nose in it. There's no way you're going you're gonna to deal with the devil and get anywhere. And so these, the, the officials ask the Assyrians, do you mind uh, you know, speaking in Aramaic? That is your, your language. We understand Aramaic. Don't speak in Hebrew. You're terrifying the people. <laughs> because these Assyrians had come. They were speaking in Hebrew so that all the people would hear the threat. And, of course, they refused to stop speaking in Hebrew. And, and if you'll look uh, chapter 19, next page, when Hezekiah heard all this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Finally, Hezekiah realizes he's not going to be able to buy his way out of this. He's not going to be able to create a human alliance out of this. He's not going to be able to fake it. He's not going to be able to use his great military strength. <laughs> so-called, there's nothing Hezekiah can do. Where does he go? Into the temple. Now we're getting somewhere. Starting to talk to God about it. And we go through all of this, and uh, they send a letter to Hezekiah. And in verse 14, next page, 581, this is 1914, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, and thrown between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words that Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Now we're getting somewhere. Sennacherib had said, you can't defend yourself. We've destroyed all these nations and their gods. What makes you think your God is any different? So Hezekiah takes the case up with God. God, show yourself to be different from these gods of wood and stone. And he's basically, we have the right to say that to him today. Lord, show yourself. You're the one true living God. There are no other gods. Now show yourself to be God in my life. And Isaiah, look at verse 20, son of Amos. This is a contemporary of Micah. Sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And by the way, in Isaiah, you'll see many phrases of Micah. We believe that Isaiah was very aware of Micah and learned from Micah and quoted Micah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. 
that the Lord has spoken against them. And you'll see that a word of judgment there against um, uh, the king of uh, Assyria. And then verse 29, next page. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant, important word, of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Now look at this, verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. All right, back to Micah. Gentlemen, uh, I don't know what that angel did. I don't know how all those 185,000 soldiers died. I just know they're dead meat. Because what Micah is teaching us, what Isaiah was teaching, what Hezekiah learned the hard way, after trial and error, unfortunately for him, is that God controls history. And when he makes promises or he makes judgments, he's perfectly capable of bringing them about. And it may look to you as though there are no human means to do this. But God is God. and He has angels at his fingertips. They're at his command. And he can do whatever he pleases to do. And you and I are called to believe that even when the odds are against us. And that is to control our lives. And we, that's where we stake our lives and our hopes and our dreams is on God and His promises. When you listen to Micah, good things happen. <laughs> that's basically the story here. The people did listen to Micah. And they did repent and God relented. Now, we're back on uh, chapter 3. And let's finish up our lesson from last time, if we could, in just a few moments. I want to get to chapter 6 and 7 because they're full of goodies for us this morning. And I want us to, to, uh, but I want us to pick up with chapter 4. God loves His people and He will be gracious to us. We had seen in chapter uh, 3 that God hates lying, cheating, and stealing, and we do a lot of it. If you remember that, that was our heading for chapter 3, that God shows His hatred for our dishonesty, for our lying, our stealing, all the rest. But God loves His people and will be gracious to us. First of all, in chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 7, we see this. The church will be exalted. That is, the nations will know peace and the remnant will be spared. This word remnant is very important. You pick it up again in verse 7. I will make the lame a remnant. Those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. So, first of all, God is saying no matter how low his people look in various nations of the world, in various circumstances, in times of history, he's going to exalt them. He's going to lift them up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. In due time. Not right now, not right away, not on your schedule, but on God's schedule. So you just stay with Him. Stay invested in Christ. Stay locked into Him. And He will lift you up in due time. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 7. In verses 4, 8 through 5, 5, we are told that the church's king will be restored. And of course, this is vital to the uh, exaltation of the church, is that her king will be reinstated in all of his glory. And, of course, these are very familiar verses. Let's take a look at them. Beginning in verse 8, he says, As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship 
will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. First of all, it's against all appearances because they have no strong king. You look in verse nine. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. So he says, when the exile comes and your king is destroyed, people will say, where's your king now? You have no glory if you have no king. But God's going to give us glory because he's going to return to us a king. In verse 10, he speaks of the exile. And of course, he's predicting here that you will go to Babylon if you look in verse 10. Now, this is, remember, during the time of the Assyrian invasion. This is quite a number of decades before the Babylonians invade and take Israel into exile. But Micah is predicting it. You'll have no king. You'll go into exile. Others will gloat over you and others will hold us in contempt. And if you are a faithful Christian in your life right now, there are times when people gloat over you and call you a prude and hold you in contempt for your values. That's happening even now. Well, you have to hold true to Christ just as that they did in Micah's day, have to hold true to the Lord. So it's against all appearances. It's also against all odds. If you look in verses 2 through 5, 5, which are the really familiar verses. What, what do we mean it's against all odds? Well, first of all, it's in the little town of Bethlehem. He says, but you, uh, if you look in verse uh, 1, uh, marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheeks with a rod. So they're coming to strike our ruler. But... You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. This is not one of the big clans. This is not like uh, Ephraim, for example. This is little, little Bethlehem. Out of you will come from me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So it's going to be in Bethlehem and from ancient times. How odd is this? The ancient of days, the one who has no beginning and no end. Born in the city of Bethlehem, predicted over 800 or around 800 years before it happens. Gentlemen, this is strange, is it not? We're supposed to put our hope in that. We're supposed to put our hope in this future Messiah that's going to come hundreds of years later. What hope is that for us? Well, if you remain faithful to the Lord, you are the remnant that will be restored at the time that his king is sent. Yes, you have to wait. We are saved in hope. We patiently wait for that which is coming. This is one of the keys to living a successful life. It is to know the future and to put your hope in the future and to live toward that future rather than being fooled like a little child in the candy store by everything that's around them in that given moment. This is maturity, is living for the long term. And this is wisdom, knowing what the long term is. And this is what's being given to us here. It's against all appearances because right now we look as though we're weak. We look as though we have no ruler. We look as though we're in chaos. That's what we look like sometimes. But he's saying the day is coming. He will shepherd his people. And a king, of course, was called a shepherd. You will have a shepherd. You will have a king who will take care of you. He will bring security. He will be great. He will bring peace. All of these things are predicted as part of the church's king being restored. And then thirdly, we see that the church's remnant will be saved. We'll be delivered from our enemies. You see that in verses 5b through 9. If you look at some of those verses, you'll see that they will be judged. We will be vindicated. In verse 7, the remnant, once again, that word is used. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like a dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forests. Like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. Here's what Micah is saying. You're going to be exiled. You're going to be scattered to the nations. It's going to look as though you've completely lost it. You've lost your nationhood. You've lost your geography. You've lost the Holy Land. What they don't realize is... They took you into exiles and you are like lions that they took into exile. For you will one day triumph over your enemies. So, yeah, they may have taken you into exile, but they didn't realize what they had. They've got lions. Because why? 
The lion of the tribe of Judah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who is to come, has little lions and they're in exile. Now, gentlemen, you and I are in exile. If you are in Christ, you are his remnant who has been dispersed all over the world. And uh, look at us. We came from different places. I don't see any native Americans here. There may be some, but you're not standing out at the moment. We all came from other places. We've been scattered, you know, from northern Europe, from Africa, from Asia. At least that's the ones I see. There may be other ones here. Uh, and we've, we've come from all over the place. We're scattered all over for, for whatever reasons in history. And it looks kind of accidental. Sometimes it looks tragic. But what it really is, is God is spreading his people out over, over all the earth. He has his lions, and you're one of them if you're in Christ. And you may think, well, I'm not that important in my business. I'm not that important in my neighborhood. I'm not that important in my church. Oh, yeah, you are too. If you're in Christ, you're one of his lions. And one of these days, he's going to call forth all of his lions, and they're going to triumph over all the enemies of God and of his church. So he's planting you right, right where you are. He has intentionally scattered you right where you are. It's no accident that you're in Memphis and in this job or that job. Uh, he, he has you where he wants you to be. And that's part of his overall plan. So we will be delivered from our enemies, these lions in the jungle. Then notice in verses 10 through 14, we're going to be sanctified from our, our idolatry. He's not going to just gather us up willy nilly with no change in our lives. No, he's going to change us. And this is extremely exciting because we know how much we struggle with sin in these days. But if you'll look at verses 10 through 14, he says, uh, I will, verse 11, I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. Okay, good. But I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. So what happens is those of us who have put our trust in Christ, the anger of God will be expressed by stripping us clean of all of our own idolatry, chasing the almighty dollar, chasing the skirts, chasing the drink, whatever it is you're chasing, whatever it is you're, you're tempted to put your life in. When you meet Christ, he will strip all that from you. He'll not only make you a conqueror, he'll make you clean. It's going to be a very dramatic day when what you want with all of your heart, more than you ever wanted anything else, more than you ever wanted sex or money or prestige, whatever it is you really struggle with, because down deep inside in your flesh, you really strongly want it. Let me tell you what you're going to want on that last day. You're going to want Christ more strongly than you've ever wanted anything. And guess what? You're going to get him. So that the deepest longings of your heart will be completely satisfied. There's holiness. Holiness means being set apart. You are set apart to desire and to receive and to worship Jesus Christ. That's what you're set apart for. And God's going to move you toward that day. He's moving you right now. But the very fact that you're here studying the Bible, He's moving you toward that day right now. That day's going to come. That's what Micah is saying. And then we'll be vindicated in that last verse. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. So if you take all the greatest and most powerful people who have perpetrated evil against God's people, it could be of the most subtle form. You are going to be vindicated before all those thrones, principalities and powers in this world. No one is going to end up having a leg up on you. Nobody. You are the lions who will rule. You are the ones who are going to be satisfied. You are the ones who are going to be happy at the end. And the key to life is realizing that's true. Stick to your guns. Why move off of them? You have this little moment called human life on earth in which you're called to be faithful against all odds. And then you have an eternity waiting for you. Now I ask you, what is three score and ten compared to eternity? Well, mathematically, it's nothing. Right? Mathematicians is nothing. So don't trade sides now. So that's what we're being told is that God will exalt his church. He will give us our king who will rule over us and defend us and protect us and provide for us. And he will save the remnant of his people. That is those who truly believe. Not just those who raise their hand when you ask all the Jewish people, please raise your hand. Or all the Christians, please raise your hand. 
It's not people who raise their hand and identify with a certain social group. It's people who in their hearts believe. That's the remnant. It's the real believers who have shaped their lives on these future promises. So you may be going to church. You may be studying the Bible every once in a while. You may even claim to be a Christian. But if you're not shaping your life in accordance with the promises of God, you're not the remnant. You're going to be simply one of those who, like in the days of, of when Babylon invaded Jerusalem, invaded them and took them exile and slaughtered them. And many, many Jews were slaughtered. But the remnant, the ones who actually put their hope and belief in the promises of God and shaped their life on it, that is, they repented, they're the remnant. And God is taking care of them. Those are His people. In the midst of the visible gathering of His people, there's a remnant of people who really do believe. And believe me, he's taking care of them. Now, those are chapters uh, 3, 4, and 5. Now, today, as we, uh, that took half our time. Now, here's the next half. We're going to look at the text assigned for today. And that is Micah 6 and 7. And we're going to come to this <clears throat> idea that God pardons his people's sins. This is so important. If there's one thing I'd like for you to get out of our whole year of study, it would be that your sins are forgiven when you trust in Jesus Christ. If you can get that, I'm telling you what, that will change you from the inside out. We use the word pardon very loosely. Oh, pardon me. Or pardon. Uh, you know, you know we, or I beg your pardon. That means I didn't hear you. Would you repeat what you said? I mean, we use pardon all kinds of ways. But the Bible, when it speaks of pardon, it means forgiving us for our offense against Almighty God by our sins of what we think, what we say, and what we do. It's a huge word. It's very, very important. And we're going to see how big a deal it really is. Now, in chapter 6, what we're told by Micah is that our ungodliness inevitably leads to God's judgment. And this judgment consists of three things. An indictment, a conviction, and a sentence, just like the courtroom, an indictment, a conviction, that is the, the real judgment, and then a sentence. Now, he indicts his people, and you can see how he's doing it in verses 1 through 8. He basically is calling them into the courtroom. And what's the courtroom? It's the mountains standing around. The mountains are going to be the jury and the judge, uh, figuratively here. And the Lord says, and you see that word listen, which introduces us to this third section, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. You see, here's the indictment or the accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So first of all, we're going to see that God's indictment of us, whatever it is, it's fair. It's so fair that he can call upon these, these ancient mountains to witness as to whether this is true. These mountains who have been there now for centuries watching these Judahites, these Israelites, these people, citizens of Jerusalem. They've been watching them. Okay, mountains, you watch this and you tell me if this isn't true. You foundations of the earth, as long as you've been here, you've seen how these people have behaved. You tell me if this is not true. So God's accusations are for any fair person who's ever been a witness to see. And he's basically saying, what I'm going to say to you is fair. Secondly, it is aggravated by our ingratitude. See what he says in verses 3 through 5 before he gives the, the actual charge. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Remember that great story? Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? That is, you remember I brought you out of Egypt and then I took you into the promised land, right to Gilgal. So you see, he's talking about his faithfulness to us all the way from the exodus in Egypt to the entrance into the promised land in Gilgal. There's 40 plus years of God's faithfulness. And God is saying, have I not taken care of you? Have I let you down some way? Have I not cared for you? You know, <clears throat> sounds kind of like your mother, doesn't it? <laughs> you get her upset, you know. You come in after midnight. Well, I'm taking care of you. I breastfed you and gave birth to you. And now you're doing this to me. Well, God's doing a little bit of this. What have I, do what have, what have I done? How did I screw up? 
How did I sin against you? Did I not care for you? And today, of course, we'd say, he would say, did I not send my son for you? And die on a cross. Die on a cross. Did he not take nails in his hands and in his feet? This is my own son. Did I not send him to do that for you? Did I not send my spirit to you to take up residence in your heart? Did I not send you apostles and prophets and evangelists through the centuries so that you were sure to get the good news and to know how to live a life of satisfaction and effectiveness? Did I not do that for you? Giving you people who were willing to lay down their lives century after century so that you would have the gospel. God is saying, what more can I do for you? So you see, whatever indictment comes, if it's fair, it's going to be aggravated by the fact that we've been ungrateful for what he's done for us. And then thirdly, it's inexcusable. He says, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And he says, look in verse 6, this famous series of verses here. uh, the, The Israelite is saying, well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn, that is like the pagans do, for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? In other words, the Israelite is saying here uh, in figurative language, asking, what do you want me to do, Lord? You ever said that? When things have gotten really tough? And uh, you wonder, why is God treating me this way? You say, God, what do you want? (laughs) That's what these people are doing. You're threatening these judgments against us. What do you want, God? And God is saying, is it as though I have never told you what I wanted? Is it really that big of a mystery? You're angry because you insist that you would be God instead of me. You're insisting that all of life will be comfortable and convenient for you. You're insisting that even though you sinned against me over and over and over again, you have a right to have life the way you want it. Uh, you, you have... Uh, You have a right to order your days just exactly the way you think they ought to be. Because, after all, you are the Lord of history, aren't you? And so, now that it's not working for you, now you're going to pretend as though I never told you what I wanted from you. And you're going to say to me with your fists clenched, What do you want from me, God? (laughs) So, here's what God says. He says, He has showed you, O man. This is what Micah is saying. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you is very simply to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There it is. To act justly. We've seen what mishpat, justice, really means. To care for the poor and the marginalized and to serve other people. To love mercy, not to judge and condemn them, but to have mercy toward them just as God has had mercy toward you. And to walk humbly, obediently, to walk with God. Don't take a side path over here. Don't go back this way. Walk with Him step after step. Walk humbly and be sure you know who is boss. That's what God requires of you. It's one verse here. It's a very few verses in Deuteronomy 30. Where Moses said, this is not so high in heaven that you can't search it out. It's so, not so deep below that you can't find it. It's right here in front of you. So God is saying, okay, look, in this indictment, let's not make any excuses like, no, I didn't know. God didn't tell me. It's, been, it's throughout his word. So this is the indictment. It is fair. It is aggravated by our many, many privileges and by our ingratitude for it. And it is inexcusable because he has shown us in the past what he wants us to do. Okay, so he moves from the acquittal, I mean, I mean the, uh, the um, what did I just say, the indictment, to the conviction. And in verses 9 through 12, he convicts them. He says, uh, if you'll look in verse 9, uh, uh, or rather, uh, he says in verse 11, shall I acquit a man? The answer, of course, is no, I shall not acquit. I shall convict. What does he convict them of? First of all, ill-gotten treasures. When you're taking advantage of people or shading your expenses, expense accounts or lying on your uh, tax return or ripping your customer off, 
or shading the truth. Believe me, he notices it. So, oh, so I see you make your living by being a thief. Interesting. Uh, he notices when you're making your living by being a thief, by overcharging your, your patients or your clients, billing them for hours you didn't put in, uh, all those turning your accounts, whatever it is. He notices it. And T.S. Eliot said most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. And that's what it is. We think that we're important because we've earned a certain level of income. And sometimes we'll do anything to do it. God, get it. God notices that and we will be convicted for it. Our violence in verse 12a, our lying 12b. So all of these things that had to do with basic honesty in the workplace and serving the poor, those are matters that matter to God. Albert Einstein said, if you are out to tell the truth, leave elegance to the tailor. <laughs> no, you can count on it when your words are getting really fancy and subtle. And you think you're doing a great job of spinning and selling what you just did actually was lie. <laughs> and uh, believe me, God knows the difference. And you can argue about what is, is, or any other kind of, uh, you know, debate that comes along. God knows what you're doing. You're trying to be elegant like a tailor, and you ought to just tell the truth and make it clear and plain like Harry Truman. <laughs> so uh, God notices that, and he convicts his people for it. And then, lastly, the sentence. God sentences his people, and you'll notice how he does it. He basically says in verses 13 through 15, you're going to work and you're going to eat, but you're still not going to be satisfied. He says uh, in verse 14, you will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. So you're going to create this huge bank account. You're going to make all this money. You forgot one important thing. God controls history. And you cannot guard that bank yourself. And you cannot guard the borders of the United States of America. And you can't guard us against inflation or against depressions. You forgot something. God's in charge. So when you build your life as though you can control everything. And some of us in this room are control freaks. I'm not calling out any names. But there's some control freaks here. And you think you can control everything. And if that's the way you're building your life, you're in for a huge disappointment. Because you can't. But there's one who can and does. His name is God. And when you build your life on Him, you can now rest and sleep at night. Put your head on the pillow and not worry. And you'll worship in vain too. Build all these great temples and you'll build all these great religions and you'll call some of them churches and God is no more worshipped there than He is when people bow down before a stone in Papua New Guinea. You call it Christian churches, but you have no idea of who God really is. You denied the Bible a long time ago, and you've, you've said that Jesus isn't necessary, and you've forsaken it. Well, that religion is in vain. It's getting you nowhere. It will satisfy nobody. And God's going to judge religion as well as the marketplace, as we see in verse 16. Now, God's judgment, then, comes because of our disobedience. So, uh, we've seen that He... He indicts us, he convicts us, and he sentences us. Our ungodliness leads to God's judgment. Then we see in, verse, in chapter 7, God's judgment leads to our misery. And look what the misery is. First of all, fruitlessness in 7.1. What misery is mine, says Micah, speaking for all of Israel. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. If you want to study history and why we have the fall of the Roman Empire and why the fall of this German Empire and this empire and that empire, there are all kinds of human and political reasons that are very, very interesting, and I suggest a study of them. But there's one overarching reason. That is that God remains as judge. And when nations leave Him and when nations leave His way of treating other people, you can count on it. His judgment is going to come and misery is going to follow. And that's the way it's going to be. And if you want to look at the families that are blessed of God. Yes, they have cancer. Yes, they have relatives who die. Yes, they have some financial troubles. But there's a rich and deep blessing in those lives. There's one reason. God dwells in that home. And you want to look at families that may have a lot of money and have a lot of prestige and get their name in the newspaper, but if you really know them, their families are dysfunctional, they don't really love each other, and their lives are a mess. There's one fundamental reason God is not ruling in that home. And so you'll find it here. You can have all kinds of appearances of success, but there's absolute fruitlessness in the life 
when God is not the center of the life. Why? Because God is God. Would you expect to have a fruitful human life if you are made by Him and made in His image and given guidance and you ignore it? Would you expect to be blessed if the Creator is the Creator and if He still governs all things? Of course not. And that's the fruit of the matter here in verse 1. And then also you'll find there's misery in ungodliness. And we touched on this last time. When those of you in the marketplace lose your credibility, you lose your business. And when the market itself loses credibility, as we saw three or four years ago, we, we can lose as much as $7 trillion of equity in one year, all based on lack of trust. And so we know, as James Monroe says, our Constitution is made for a moral and religious people. It won't work for any other kind of people. You can't have political freedom. You can't enjoy the things that we enjoy in this culture without having morality and religion. It's not going to work. And the only way you can have morality and religion that means anything is if they're based on the truth revealed by God Himself. So it's not the morality and the religion. It's the worship and obedience to the living personal God. And that's the way our freedoms are going to work. And when you lose your devotion to God, you lose your morality religion, and you lose the freedoms in the marketplace. And here's why. All that stuff, verses 2 through 6, it's all described there. It's, It's a description of what's happening in our own country. Why? Because it always happens. It happened in the church in Israel. When they forsook the Lord and His commandments, everything falls apart. And how do you do business in an environment like that? How would you do business in an environment like that? You're not going to do much business. You're not going to do business like you are now. And that's the reason that God's people are meant to be a gift, not a curse. A blessing, not a curse. They're supposed to be givers and not takers to any society because we're salt and light. And as we worship the Lord and build real community in our churches and build real community in our city, and then we proclaim to people the joy of being honest and being able to trust each other, and we demonstrate how it works even when it costs us something, we show people that it's worth losing in order to win, the big game, you lose the little game in order, you lose the million dollars in order to gain eternal life. You lose the little game in order to win the big game. We show people how you do that because we have convictions about a living God who knows the hearts of the people in the marketplace. And we believe that we're living our life before the face of God and that every other man is too. That message gets out and you begin to see a whole community transformed. It could even go international. So this is what happens when God's judgment comes upon a people who abandon his ways. It's going to lead to misery. We're not going to get by with this. It's always been true and it's true today. Now, the last and best news is the best news is safe for last. And that is in the midst of our misery and Israel's ministry, misery, the church's misery, our misery leads to God's mercy. This is an amazing thing. You see, in verse seven. We never lose hope. In the midst of their misery, Micah says in verse 7, But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. You say, what? In all this misery, people killing each other, being dishonest, waiting for exile. The Babylonians will be coming in a few decades. The Assyrians are already here. What are you talking about? Micah says, no, I believe it. Because it's in the Word of God. I stake my life on it. And Micah did. And that's the reason that Micah has his book in the Bible. Because he based his life on the future hope of Israel. That's exactly what Christians do. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. We believe in the return of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that His judgments and His salvation are true. And we're going to wait for Him. Though the Lord slay me, says Job, yet will I trust Him. So we're going to trust Him to death and through death. That's how deep the conviction of a Christian runs. It comes right from Micah. Then in verses 8 through 17, and we're not going to go into it. We just, I just want to say, don't switch sides. Because what's going to happen, you could read those verses later, God's going to judge those nations. Everybody who's been trying to influence you, everybody who's trying to get you to do their thing, everybody who's telling you, oh, this is the way everybody's doing it, and they, they sing you this sweet siren song trying to get you to come their way. Let me tell you, one day they're going to all come under the judgment of God. And you will be a fool if you switch sides and go with them right now. If you move off of your anchored position 
of serving the Lord Jesus Christ with a cheerful heart, and you go off and start doing the wicked things that they're doing. And everybody said, oh, come on, go view pornography with us. Go down here to the nightclub. Oh, everybody's doing it. To hell with that. And I mean literally what I'm saying. To hell with it. Because that's exactly where it's going. You want to go with them? Well, then you just go on. And the people say, oh, look, everybody's, you know, they shade the truth a little bit. You've got to do that to be in business. You've got to be shrewd. To hell with that. Because that's exactly where it's going. To hell. You just put your anchor down and you stick with what you know is the truth. And hang on. Because Christ is coming back. That is the life of a Christian. And it's so joyful. And it's liberating. Just as we said last week, you don't cram your religion down anybody's throat and they don't cram their religion down your throat. Why should you have something crammed down your throat? Be who you are and enjoy the liberty of it. Don't switch sides now. You'd be an idiot. It's like the Battle of the Bulge. It looked like if you're right in the middle of that thing, you're just comfortably sitting there with your you know, feet up on the desk, listening to the radio, smoking your cigar, and here come all these Germans with all their tanks. You go, oh, geez, I'm going to be a German. I'm going to side with them. These people are on a rampage. Well, about a few weeks later, you're going to find the, you know, the Allies coming the other direction. <laughs> and you would have been a fool to switch sides. You better stay with the winning side. We never cease to be amazed. And this is the heart of the whole passage. Who is a God like you? Let's look at these three verses at the end. Who is a God like you? And that is what... Micah means, Micah means, who is like God? He's in absolute amazement at God. Why? At God's forgiveness. Look at this. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Look at this. He cancels sin. He takes a big eraser and he just wipes out all your sin. Not just what you did yesterday. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. Let me tell you something. He wipes that off the slate too before you even do it. And he cancels specific sin. What do I mean by that? Well, look what he says. Forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. It's the remnant. He doesn't cancel everybody's sin. Did he cancel the Assyrians' sin? Did he cancel the Babylonians' sin? Did he cancel everybody's sin who was a Jew? No, these people went into exile. He canceled the sin, the transgression of the remnant of His people. What's a remnant? The people who actually believe. Even though they suffered the exile along with all the other Israelites, these people actually believed and had their hope in the coming Messiah. Just as you have your hope in the Messiah who already came. Those are the people's sins who are forgiven. It's based on God's character. It's based on His long-suffering. It's based on His compassion and His mercy in verse 18. It's in the very character of God. He cancels sin repetitively. You say, oh, I I know He'd forgive me, but shoot, I did it again. (laughs) Look at verse 19. You will again have compassion on us. So over and over and over again, you cannot out-sin God's forgiveness. When you put your trust in Christ and receive Him as Savior, He forgives all your sins over and over again. He conquers sin. He treads these things underfoot. He stomps that sucker. He smashes it. He destroys it. He obliterates it. And then He throws it into the bottom of the sea. Look, He hurls it into the sea just as He did hurl the Egyptians into the Red Sea. That's the language that's being used here. And as Corey Tim Boom used to say, He hurls our sins into the sea and puts a sign there that says, No fishing allowed. He forgets it. It's gone. That's the nature of God's forgiveness. And then you also see we are amazed at God's faithfulness. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham. Ebenezer Henderson put it this way. His Micah's description of the character of Jehovah is unrivaled by any contained elsewhere in the Scriptures. Horace Bushnell said forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest accomplishment. What difference does this make to us? Three things. I'm going to go two minutes over today. We are guiltless. You say, does that really work? Yeah, it works. Won't it lead to license? No. It'll lead to liberty. And it'll lead to liberty that leads to service and worship. The only way you can serve Him with a full heart is if you know, as Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
no condemnation, which means no guilt, no guilt. You're you're removed of guilt. Then we become grateful. And that is the motive for all service to the living God. Every other motive is unworthy of him. Our motive is gratitude for what he has done. Going back to when he tells them, I delivered you out of Egypt. I brought you into the promised land. That's our motive. Lord, you're the one who delivers us out of Egypt. You're the one who brought us into the promised land. Therefore, we're going to serve you. That is the way that forgiveness works. You remember, you're the one who sent your son to die on the cross. You're the one who gave us your spirit. You're the one who gave us your word with all the apostles and prophets who gave it to us. I'm going to serve you. You're a gracious God. And then lastly, we're gracious to other people. And the way you can really tell if someone's got this down deep in their bones, got the message of Micah. Observe them when someone does them in and whether they know how to forgive a sinner. That's where the test is. And some of you right now, you're thinking about about people who really did you in. And I'm not saying that you are naive or that you say, oh, you hit me here. Well, take that baseball bat and hit me again. Uh, We're not a doormat. On the other hand, we're people who know how to forgive. And there's one reason, because we got forgiven. And here's this almighty God who knows everything, whose judgments are perfect. And he, along with all the hills and the mountains, saw everything that we said and did. And he knows our thoughts. And there is a fair, inexcusable judgment. And we have been delivered. And not only have we been delivered, we are deeply loved and cherished. And that leads to amazing grace. And that is what leads us out of here to say, Who is a God like this who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of my soul? That is a life-changing message from Micah. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word and giving us the prophet Micah. And more importantly, we're thankful for exalting Your church by exalting the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and giving us hope for our future and a purpose for our today. And I pray for every one of my friends here that as we go out of this room as men, that we will be salt and light, that we will stick to what you've given us, and that we will know in the bottoms of our hearts that your son, Jesus Christ, is coming back soon and shall shower us with blessings beyond all of our imaginations. May we live in that hope today through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless.